Today's episode was brought to you by Podcash, a collaboration between Racket and Stir. Podcash recently gave away $100,000 to up-and-coming podcasters to support creatives like me, who are just getting started because they know how hard it can be to get a podcast off the ground. It's basically free money for your podcast, which is pretty rad. Misfits was lucky enough to be selected as one of the funding recipients, and we couldn't be more thankful to Podcash as well as you, our listeners. If podcasting is an aspiration of yours, or if you're already a podcaster, go to podcast.com to stay up to date with future podcast happenings. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-H dot com. It's hard to pin down Lauren Lola because there's a lot to her. That's kind of what I'm trying to do with this podcast, show that there's a lot more to all of us. For one, she's a writer. She's the author of two novels, A Moment's Worth and An Absolute Mind. She also writes for Nerds of Color, Mixed Asian Media, and Center for Asian American Media. She recently wrote a play that was featured in Rainy Day Artistic Collective's Halfway Historical Festival. Oh, and she's a huge fan of The Matrix, the first one specifically which we will definitely talk more about in this episode. Lauren also has a multifaceted background, with heritage from the Philippines, as well as Germany, Ireland, and Portugal. Yet, despite this rich ethnic lineage, Lauren feels like her family talked much more about her European roots than her Filipino ones. She doesn't feel like she had many opportunities to celebrate, or even acknowledge her Filipino background. Today, Lauren Lola and I talk about taking pride in our ethnic heritage, the complexities of Asian identity, and writing science fiction. Stereotypes don't tell the whole story. I'm your host, Annie Prafke, and you're listening to Misfits, a podcast featuring discussions with people who felt like black sheep in their communities because of their identity. such a cool name Lauren Lola so it sounds like a, <laughs> like a I don't know like an actress or like a character name the first year I was alive yeah someone told my parents that like oh that sounds like the name of a movie star you grew up in a multiracial Filipino household yes yeah, so what I tell people is that I did grow up in a multiracial family but I would say I more so grew up in a predominantly white household it felt like you know, if you were to ask what I am, I would identify first as an American more than anything else. I'm Filipino and Irish on my dad's side, and I'm Portuguese and German on my mom's side. It always felt like, you know, my German heritage was on a higher pedestal as opposed to my Filipino heritage, which was often like the last priority in that respect. I know the reason why that was the case. There's a lot of trauma on my dad's side of the family. You know, specifically surrounding, you know, the Filipino side. I think that just kind of turned off my dad from wanting to incorporate those aspects into the upbringing for myself and for my siblings, which is why I wasn't really exposed to it growing up. 
even though I do live in the Bay Area. But I feel that I would have been spared of a lot of confusion had my Filipino heritage been talked about more openly and, you know, my biracial identity was talked about more openly as well. I feel that that probably would have prepared me more for the world that I was about to enter. Did you like wonder why your family focused more on your German heritage as opposed to your Filipino heritage? So I guess just to break it down even further, of the four ethnicities I named for you, two of them, you know, like my grandparents are immigrants. So on my mom's side, my grandmother is from Germany. And on my dad's side, my grandfather was from the Philippines. So those are the ones I have like the closest direct lines back to the motherlands or however you want to call it. Um, and my my mom grew up, you know, German and proud. Like I, Christmas isn't Easter, so there was always there's always German dishes. That was just kind of a norm for me, and I think it's because she was raised being proud of her German identity that that was incorporated more. And actually, very similar to my experience, my I mentioned before, my mom is also part Portuguese. She didn't grow up knowing too much about her Portuguese heritage because of actually very similar reasonings on my maternal grandfather's side of the family where there was a lot of fam familial issues that kind of turned off my grandfather from wanting to incorporate those cultural aspects into his children's upbringings. So yeah, I think that's why my German heritage is more of a, of a higher presence as opposed to the others. Did you feel like you identified strongly with your German heritage growing up? Was it something that you were proud of and really interested in exploring further? I think because of the fact that I had gotten so much exposure to it when I was young, I didn't feel too inclined to explore further. Although I will say that it was very cool that I actually had gone to visit Germany when I was 17. I went on a trip to Europe the summer before my senior year of high school as part of a people-to-people -people travel program, a nonprofit that they have for kids like ages K through 12 that let them go out into the world and explore different cultures and different heritages, as opposed to if you were just a tourist traveling. One of the countries I went to was to Germany, and I actually did a homestay there for a few days as well. So that was very special, just getting to see those familiar aspects I grew up with in the setting where they originally came from. So I never really felt too inclined with exploring more of my German heritage, again, because it was so embedded in my upbringing. But because of the fact that my Filipino heritage was often pushed off to the side, that that was the heritage I was more inclined to explore more. I kind of want to jump to your Filipino heritage now as well. You said that your family maybe didn't try as actively to instill that in you. But living in the Bay Area, I know there is a, a sizable Filipino population. And I'm wondering if you knew other Filipinos, you know, in your neighborhood or in your area. And if you tried to learn more about Filipino culture from them. It's funny. A couple of years ago, I looked back in my yearbooks I had from elementary school just to be like, were there other Filipino kids in my grade when I was there? And surprisingly, there weren't that many, which I thought was odd. I grew up near Fremont. Yeah, near there. Not in Fremont, but close to it. So yeah, I thought it was a little weird. There weren't that many Filipino American kids in my elementary school, but junior high and onwards, there was definitely more of a presence. And I think it's because I saw, I was surrounded by more Filipino-American kids that I felt more inclined to explore that side of my identity more because it was during 
my teenage years that I started delving more into that side of my family more and learning more of the culture. Even though the resources I had available to me were a little limited at the time, you know, like that's where the spark began, basically. Um, if you don't mind me asking, like, where in the Bay Area did you live when you were here? I lived in San Jose and I was working on the east side of San Jose. So the, okay. the students that I worked with were primarily like Latinx and Vietnamese, but there were also a fair amount of Filipino students as well and teachers. Yeah, there's a, it was called like, I think there's like a little Saigon type place somewhere in San Jose. So that makes sense. I'm curious, what do you make of the Asian American community in the Bay Area and how does it compare to where you grew up? Yeah, that's a good question. So I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota, which is Midwest area, primarily white. There were a few other Asian students that I knew. A few were immigrants. We have a sizable population from Nepal. And then there were other Chinese adoptees I knew and a few other Asian Americans who may have been second generation, third generation Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. But I was definitely a minority. And so it was interesting going to the Bay Area where I looked like a lot more people around me. So I think I did take that time to really explore my Asian identity as well. I was especially interested in going into San Francisco because San Francisco has a larger Chinese population yeah. and I'm ethnically Chinese. Mm -hmm. And so I found it very fun to go to like the Chinese New Year celebration and to explore mm -hmm. Chinatown and to do those things. So I was, what, 22 mm -hmm. when I went for the first time. What did you think of it? I thought it was great. Like it was just, I, there was just kind of like sense of wonder and I'm sure some of it was kind of this exoticization, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, Chinatown very much appeals to not only the people who live in that area, but also like white tourists, right? Or tourists from all over the world. And so they oh, try yeah. to create this kind of like fantasy Asia with the lion dances and shows and like the shops are very colorful. And I even remember the Chinese New Year Parade in San Francisco is very much like companies promoting their businesses and just like <laughs> extravagance more than necessarily like preserving traditions or making things authentic to how things might be done in China, for example. You know, I went to um, the Lunar New Year Parade in 2013 in San Francisco, Chinatown. And just to harpoon on your point, there was a float that came up at one point and they were playing Gangnam Style because this was the summer after that song blew up. So yeah, like I definitely, I definitely understand your observation in that. It's like they're playing a Korean song at a festival that's in Chinatown. Right. And it was probably like a float sponsored by like Facebook or something. I don't think it was Facebook. I don't remember what float it was for, <laughs> but yeah. That's kind of interesting too. So, you know, San Francisco is probably the first city that you think of when you think of the Bay Area and it has a large Asian population, but as I mentioned, it's primarily Chinese, I would say. Do you feel like there were avenues for you to explore Filipino culture? Were there celebrations? Are there neighborhoods that are known for being more Filipino? And did you try to go to those places and, and learn more? I think definitely more so as an adult. In 2016, Soma Filipinas was established in San Francisco. So that is a predominantly Filipino alcove of San Francisco. It's in South of Market. That's what Soma stands for. And there's a bunch of organizations there and they continue to grow all the time. There's like, there's Benilsa Studio, which is a local theater there. There is also a couple of gardens, which just opened, I think, within the last year, actually, where they hold a lot of community events. And there's also all Undiscovered, which is a Filipino night market, kind of modeled off of like the 626 ones that you hear of. 
there's just like a lot that's going on in that little corner of the bay. You know, I miss not getting to be around ever since the pandemic hit. Just haven't been able to go there as often. But yeah, I think that, you know, from being in those spaces a bit more frequently as an adult, I've definitely been more exposed to my Filipino side a lot more through avenues such as what is provided there. Are you able to talk to your family now about your Filipino identity and maybe ask them questions about it? Or do you still feel like that's an area that you kind of just have to not explore through your family? I think the answer is yes and no. Yes, because I've become more open to it and have become more accepting of that side that I think that's kind of lured my dad into exploring more of like the good aspects of being Filipino-American. We're at the point now where sometimes he'll go out and he'll bring back Filipino food from like a local restaurant or something. In the summers, he'll like bring back a tub of, of ube ice cream that we'll just chow down on in like a few days. Yeah, I think, and you know, food is like one of the most accessible avenues into a culture, any culture for that matter. So he's definitely opening up to it. Although I think there's still some areas where I think it's a bit more difficult to get through. Just a few weeks ago, I was trying to get him to like, can you tell me again the story about his tita, his favorite aunt? Because I was writing a Zoom play that's kind of inspired by her life. I just need to get him to sit down and be like, can you please tell me again the story so I can write down? Because I kind of need this for, for reference for this thing I'm writing. And he was just like, I don't know why you're so determined to know this particular story person well. And I'm like, well, this is a story that I don't think is commonly known. Yeah, like basically without going too in depth, because this is for a play that's coming up. It's my, my great aunt studied in the U.S. from the Philippines in the late 40s, early 50s. And one summer, she actually traveled down to the Jim Crow South, not knowing, you know, what the situation was like there at the time. And so that was a wake up call for her to realize the racism that was imminent and still is imminent in this country. That sounds like a fascinating story. I'm glad you're recording it. Yeah, that's why I was just like, so determined, like, could you please just tell me the story? Because I really need this and I have a deadline coming up and all that. But yeah, it's just like, I guess it all comes down to what aspect of our Filipino-Americanness comes into play. Growing up, did you identify strongly as Asian-American? That's a good question. So I would probably say no, mainly because I didn't even realize I was Asian-American until I was about five or six years old. We're recording this on Martin Luther King Day, which I find very well-timed because it wasn't until I first learned about Martin Luther King that I realized that I was different. I mentioned before there weren't that many Filipino Americans in my elementary school, and I grew up in a suburb. So even though it was pretty diverse, there were still a lot of white kids around. And I realized then that, wow, I actually don't look like a lot of my classmates. Even though I knew I was part white, I realized then that I'm like, okay, there's something different about me, but I don't know what it is exactly. I didn't even think if I'm part Asian at all, which, you know, is a conversation in of itself about like, are Filipinos Asian or Pacific Islanders? We can get into that in a bit. But yeah, it was around then that either my mom or my dad were like, oh, you're also Filipino. And then just kind of left it as that. There wasn't really too much discussion beyond that, as you can probably tell. The problem with a category like Asian 
like any racial category, is that it homogenizes a diverse group of people. There are between 45 and 53 Asian countries. The confusion lies in countries that aren't universally recognized and countries like Turkey and Russia that cross our socially constructed continental borders. Asians come from places as different as Brunei, a small tropical country with a Muslim majority, to Mongolia, a sparsely populated country surrounded by China and Russia. And then you have to account for all of the Asians no longer living in Asia. They're among Americans, Indonesian Australians, Indian Trinidadians, etc. To complicate things further, within these groups are more subcategories. I, as a Chinese adoptee, have had a very different experience than my Chinese-American friends whose parents came as immigrants. So you had mentioned, you know, are Filipinos Asian or are they Pacific Islanders? Well, one, I'd be curious to hear more your thoughts on that and if that's a conversation that's often had in the Filipino community. But I'm also wondering, in the Bay, you know, there's a lot of Asian people, but of course, there are different groups. And I think there are different associations and perhaps hierarchies of these groups as well. For example, in the area of San Jose where I was teaching, the perceptions I was getting was that a lot of the Vietnamese and Filipino students were recent immigrants. So they were first generation, second generation immigrants. A lot of them were lower income because they were new to the country. They were just starting out, learning the language. And so I think there's a very different association for being a Filipino or Laotian or Vietnamese in the United States than if you were Chinese, for example. I think in the Bay, there was more of an assumption that if you're Chinese, your family had probably been in the United States for a few generations, you were more established, wealthier, and you maybe lived in San Francisco and had a tech job. Do you feel like there were different hierarchies amongst or maybe conflicts between the different Asian communities that you grew up with? Or do you feel like everyone came together in kind of a big pan-Asian family? This is definitely a subject I've talked about quite a bit. I think even more so within recent years. I feel that where we are in the Asian American community, I'd like to think that we're all at the same level, if that makes sense. but. Obviously, that's not the case. This is something I've been telling people more often, which is that I feel that we're more quick to say we're not a monolith than show it. Because it feels like when we do show it, it's often met with silence or it's disregarded or it's not given any mind to. Like, it's true, we're, we're not a monolith, but they're just, I feel like there just hasn't been as much perception and exploring how we're not monolith. Kind of already an indicator. I didn't think of myself as Asian American growing up. Part of it because it wasn't really talked about, obviously. But I think another part is that for a good while, the perception of Asian America didn't always include Filipino Americans. And maybe even now, that wasn't, that's not always the case. I feel that whenever people ask Filipino Americans, are you Asian? It just to me, it feels like almost a form of gaslighting because you wouldn't, you wouldn't ask that to someone who's Chinese or Japanese or Korean, and they're usually the ones you think of when you hear the word Asian. You know, faces like yours, yours are the ones that usually come to mind when you hear the word Asian American. And the fact that I can't even say that to myself, like my face is not the first one that comes to mind when they hear the term Asian American, says a lot about 
the progress I think our community still needs to make. Do you think any of that identification comes from within the Filipino community? For example, you said that maybe some Filipinos identify more with Pacific Islanders. Do you think that it's because they don't feel welcomed in the Asian community? Or do you think it's because they feel like they're different culturally and they don't want to be lumped together in that category? Obviously, I think it's a question that it depends on who you ask, but I think it's a little bit of both or a little bit of all of that, which is because we're not often including these conversations that we just kind of separate ourselves from it. I think in another way, culturally, there's aspects of, you know, like especially pre-colonial Filipino culture where there's more common ground with different Pacific Island nations. For me personally, I don't consider us Pacific Islanders. It just feels like we would be taking something away that's not technically ours. And then also from a geographical standpoint, we are within Southeast Asia as well. Overall, I think it's a broad question of what makes you Asian, which I think is a question that should be asked anyone who considers themselves Asian American and not just those who are a darker shade. Right. And I think that the skin color really comes into play, too. I, I noticed that it's kind of our idea of what Asians look like, but I think it's beauty standards within the Asian community as well and within Asia. But typically, like lighter skinned Asians are put higher in the hierarchy, whereas people who come from Asian countries where skin tones are darker, they're kind of like swept under the rug at best and at worst really discriminated against even within the Asian community, which is unfortunate. Yeah. And I know that at least in the Filipino culture, you know, colorism is a thing within that as well. Like you probably, maybe you've heard of it about, you know, like skin whitening creams that they make that I'm pretty sure are not FDA approved. Or like you'll hear like Tita's or Lola saying like, don't play in the sun because your skin will get dark. I never had that when I was growing up, thankfully. That was something I was exposed to much later. You know, when I first learned that, I'm thinking, this is disturbing. I can't believe that these attitudes exist within these communities themselves. I think the other thing that's kind of interesting about the discussion of like, who's Asian versus who isn't, and of course you can say this with any racial category, right? But it's such a broad category. <laughs> like Asian, encompasses so many different countries and cultures and areas of the world. It kind of reminds me of like the category of Hispanic or Latino. I remember in the high school that I worked at in San Jose, there were a lot of students from all over Latin America. So there were a lot of Mexican students. There were also a lot of students from Honduras and Guatemala. And I remember they'd often have these kind of tongue in cheek arguments about who had the best food or who had the best dancing who had the best beaches, things like that. And it kind of made me realize, I don't think that they would really have associated themselves or thought of, thought of each other in the same group prior to moving to the United States and to going to the school where they were all kind of just lumped together in the same place and everyone called them one race or one group of people that they started to see themselves as connected to these people from totally different countries and, and cultures. Yeah. My dad went to university on the East Coast in Washington, D.C. in the late 70s, early 80s. So, you know, obviously post-civil rights movement, but it's the South. So, you know, there's still some prejudices there. He had experiences that he never experienced growing up in the Bay Area where there were a lot of people asking, what are you? Where are you from? A police officer called him a chink once. 
So that in of itself should say how he was viewed. He was considered different in that neck of the woods. Also, in a similar vein of whether Filipinos are Asian, again, I think it says a lot when, was it like two weeks after the Atlanta spa shootings, a Philippine woman was beaten outside a building and there were security officers who saw this and didn't do anything to help her. If anything, I would consider that one of too many attacks have been made against the Asian American community within the last two years. And given less attention too, I feel like the ones that I saw, and maybe, you know, some of this is on me too, if it's what I was looking for, but I often notice that the incidents that got attention were in the Bay Area, and they were usually about East Asians, attacks on East Asians, and usually older people who were affected. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And that started to spike up again, I guess, actually around this time last year when the Lunar New Year was coming up. That's why I'm a little worried, you know, now as we're approaching Lunar New Year again, I'm worried that these hate crimes are going to spike up again. And it feels like it's already happening with what's been happening in the news the last few days. Are you worried for your own safety? Yeah. Yeah, I've been worried ever since these started happening back in March 2020. But again, again, because of the fact that my Asian American heritage isn't talked about too much, my family, that it really wasn't until last March, a few days before the Atlanta spa shootings, that my dad had said, you know, be careful when going out. There's been a lot of hate crimes happening. You know, I think it says a lot when one parent is warning you to be careful, but then after the Atlanta spa shootings, the other parent, the white parent, doesn't even bother to bring it up to you and ask how you're doing. Lauren grew up hearing a lot of people inquiring about her ethnic background. So many of us, myself included, are guilty of having this strange desire to know someone's racial and ethnic makeup. While Lauren says her Filipino-American identity was downplayed during her youth, she remembers that people would target her because of her German background as well, associating it with Nazis. It's similar to what some folks did to the Chinese during the height of the coronavirus pandemic, and it's also what we're doing to Russians in the wake of the invasion in Ukraine. We conflate the deplorable actions of political leaders and governments with an entire group of people, forgetting that they may not condone those leaders' actions and may, in fact, disagree with them completely. There is one incident that did happen. I wouldn't call it race-related. I think it was more ethnicity-related. When I was a junior in high school, I was in the journalism program, and we had this assignment one day where we had to interview each other. By that point, I had already been asked, what are you? Who knows how many times? The guy I was partnered with asked, what's your ethnicity? And I named him the list, and I mentioned I'm part German. And then he dares to ask the question, are you a neo-Nazi? All because I'm part German. My grandmother was high down in bomb shelters throughout the war, and her house was bombed on the last day of the war. Like she was worrying about her safety. She was worrying about her family's safety. You know, she wasn't involved in whatever the Nazis were doing, which was, you know, killing six million Jews and then others. She was just trying to survive. That was an infuriating moment for me in high school. And even now, I remember going to my mom after school that day. I told her what happened. She was furious and she contacted my teacher. And my teacher said to him, if you ever do this again, you're getting kicked out of the class and you're failing for the semester. 
That didn't happen again. Did he ever apologize? No. But that moment still sticks with me even now. I'm sorry that you went through that. Yeah. You know, kids find any reason to call you out or attack you. And it looks like, you know, even in this case, like they find even on the white side of you, they found ways to make you feel different or stand out. Yeah. Now Nazis and Germans and now Germans are Nazis. Adolf Hitler was from Austria. So he wasn't German at all. And he was Jewish. So just saying. Yeah. Nonsensical. Is what it is. Yeah. I also want to talk a little bit about your identity as a writer. You were in a journalism program in high school. When did you decide that you wanted to become a writer? That is a fantastic question. Unfortunately, I don't have the answer. <laughs> it's something I've always enjoyed doing. Both of my parents are major bookworms. I'm pretty sure that's, I have a feeling that's one of the things that drew them together when they were first getting to know each other. And so obviously that was something that they would instill in my siblings and I growing up. But I noticed that for every other person who reads, there's someone who is inclined to write. And that just happened to be the case with me. You know, even though I didn't know how to write at, you know, the age of three or whatever, I would still draw little pictures to tell stories. And then once I did learn how to write, it just kind of took off from there. But it wasn't until, Jesus, almost 10 years ago now when I was 20 that I decided to start taking it more seriously. And so since then, I've written and published a few novels. I've written a couple of short plays, feature lengths screenplays. Especially during the pandemic, I've been applying for a lot of screenwriting programs and challenges as well. So it's just kind of been taking off since then, ever since I just decided to be like, yeah, this is what I want to do with my life. And I'm not going to wait around for things to happen or to make it happen. Yeah, good for you. And I love how you just rolled up, wrote a few novels and a few screenplays, listening <laughs> off of the grocery list, just like some <laughs> casual thing. What are your novels about? They're I think firmly rooted in magical realism and science fiction. My first one, A Moment's Worth, is very experimental. If you've ever read maybe books like Cloud Atlas, it's kind of similar to that where there's all the little different narratives and they all kind of intersect in different ways. And then with my second novel, which is An Absolute Mind, that's more of a, you know, point A, point B sci-fi novel where in an optimistic future, there are people who have any genetically evolved cognitive ability that puts them at risk for people who can't handle the difference. And one young woman decides to rise up and do something about it. It's kind of both of those novels in a nutshell. Yeah, I self-published them. Uh, one of them, the first one came out in 2014. The other one came out in 2016. I wouldn't say they've garnered success. Again, probably because they're self-published and I can only wear so many hats at once. But even though I probably would write them differently now, you know, I'm still proud of what I did then. Yeah, that's still incredible that you've written two novels. That's <laughs> more than a lot of people can say they've done. So <laughs> do you like magical realism, kind of fantasy, sci-fi type stuff? Why do you think you like those genres? You know, I think when I was growing up, I didn't really care too much about what genre I was reading as long as I was entertained. And that's still the extent now. But I think now as a writer, you know, with all the, you know, all of the hot garbage that's been happening the last, you know, six or so years, I just needed an escapism when I, when I wanted to write something. And so I think that's what 
drew me to those genres even more so, both as a writer and also as a reader. I like those genres because you can watch them or read them and you're completely taken out of this world, which I think we all need sometimes. Oh, yeah. Do you have any sci-fi characters, shows, movies that you draw inspiration from? Well, I mentioned that uh, my debut novel, Moments Birth, was inspired by Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas was written by David Mitchell. I don't know if you've read any of his work, but his work plays a lot with time and magical realism and science fiction. So basically all the genres I'm into. So he was definitely an early inspiration. I actually, I met him last month by chance, actually, because he was one of the um, co-writers for The Matrix Resurrections. And I just happened to be behind him in line at the box office. <laughs> so I briefly got to talk to him. Yeah. Okay. That's the coolest thing about living in some place like California is that truly like you do have like a fair chance of meeting somebody famous like at any second. If you're in Southern California, I'm in Northern California. So this was a rarity even for me. I've only been to LA once. I have a friend who lives in Pasadena, but okay. it was so funny because I mean, she lives in an area where there are like actors that live, but we just happened to like walk by like an ice cream stand and we went mm -hmm. to go get ice cream. And then Disney was there filming something online. And so we ended up being extras in some like online Disney show. I never ended up watching it. They probably cut our scenes because we were like giggling so much. But <laughs> it had to be unusable footage. But I was like, of course, the one time I go to LA and I end up on Disney, right? Like that's just incredible. Was it a series that they were filming for or was it a reality show or? I had to sign like a little contract thing. I probably should have read it more carefully, to be honest. I think it was just like an online series that they were doing. So I doubt it had like super wide audiences, but it was still cool to say. It's a fun story to bring up when I talk about going to LA. What year was this? This was in 2018. 2018. It might have been 2019 because it was in the spring. Okay. So it might, maybe it might have been something for Disney Plus since it had officially launched by then. Possibly. Like I said, I should have probably read more closely before I saw it. <laughs> But this so, is also super secretive with their stuff. So maybe there sure, wasn't so. on there. It's true. I am very curious, though. I feel like I need to go online and, and look for this. I have no idea how I'd find it. So I think I got an email from someone at some point because I just send a headshot. So maybe I'll get called for auditions for the next show. I look young. I'm 26, <laughs> but I could probably play like a 13-year-old. I'm almost 30, and I could look like a 16-year-old. Classic. Another typical Asian girl thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We age, you know, eventually, just not right now. Right. It all just hit us like a brick wall in 40 like years. Yeah, 40, <laughs> yeah. 50 years, give or take. Stay tuned just a bit longer because up next, Lauren and I talk about the Matrix series, including the Matrix Resurrections. Don't worry, I promise there won't be any spoilers because I'm ashamed to say I still have not seen it. Uh, okay, well, you brought it. The Matrix Resurrections. And so I will say I'm late coming to the Matrix series. I've actually just last night or two nights ago, I watched the third one. So now I've seen all of the three original ones. You saw and Revolutions. I still have not seen, yeah, I've not seen Matrix Resurrections. But one, favorite Matrix. Favorite Matrix movie of all time. Obviously the original. Okay. Classic answer. And then in, no spoilers because like I said, I haven't seen it, but in three words. How would you describe The Matrix Resurrections? A love story. Oh, okay. Okay. So we'll, <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. I, I'll keep opinions out because sometimes I don't like hearing what other people think of movies before I see it because it really does taint 
my view of it. But love was a strong theme. I mean, throughout the whole thing, but especially mm-hmm. in the third one. So that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, I, I guess you could say that for the third one. I, I'm i sorry. I really don't care for the third one that much, honestly. That's all right. That's another popular opinion, I think. Yeah. So, but the thing I thought was cool about the third one is you really get to see the world that they live in a little bit more, which I know people want to see the Matrix, but it's cool to see like how the society actually runs, mm-hmm. which is something that I think is cool when sci-fi does. It's like, well, what does the day-to-day just look like? Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Although... I would argue about whether it shows the day-to-day in real society when they spend like half an hour in battle. <laughs> half an hour! Yeah, fair point. It's, I think, harder probably to rewatch because it's a lot of battle scenes. Yeah, like that film left me mentally exhausted just from watching it. Yes, I can, I can relate to that. All fair point. Ending on that note, I think that's all I have for you unless there's anything else you wanted to bring up. Also, if you want to talk about where we can find your work, too. Okay, let's start with the basics then. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Ako Lauren Lola. So, A-K-O Lauren Lola. I write for the Nerds of Color, as well as Mixed Asian Media, as well as the Center for Asian American Media. I have interviews and other feature pieces go on there quite a few times throughout the year. So, definitely go check that out. Everything can be found together at my website, which is lolabythebay.wordpress.com. So you can find the links to my books. You can keep up to date with any projects I have going on, other things I have going on in my mind, and all that good stuff. So it's all there to check out. Awesome. And I'll put all the links for that in the description of the podcast to make it easy for people to find. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks so much for being here, Lauren. It was a pleasure talking to you and very fun. We covered a lot of ground. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, I, I enjoyed our conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Annie. Thank you for listening to Misfits. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at ACXP Misfits and on Instagram at ACXP Misfits, where you can also send us a message with ideas for the show or let us know if you or anyone you know would like to come on as a guest. We'd love to have you. One last thing. If you want to check out the play that Lauren wrote, which was inspired by her great aunt's experiences in the Deep South, it's called Not in Kansas. More information can be found on Lauren's website, which is linked in the podcast description.